Now, the Three Martini Lunch with Greg Columbus and Jim Garrity. And welcome, everyone, to the Monday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. David French of National Review is in for the spring-breaking Jim Garrity. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. We have good, good, and bad martinis for conservatives today. And David and I have a slight difference of opinion on the first one, but since David provides the expert analysis, he wins the thumb wrestling contest. Our first good martini is the uh, incredible, and I think we agree on this, the incredible comeback story of Tiger Woods, four-time Masters champion heading into this last tournament over the past weekend, Uh, 14-time major tournament winner, second only to Jack Nicklaus's 18. But, of course, he hadn't won a major since 2008. Late 2009 is when the personal problems uh, started spiraling out of control. And then in the intervening decade, he had a multitude of back and knee surgeries. And, well, he spent a lot of time away from the course. And a lot of folks thought uh, that getting back to the top was going to be impossible. But he put together four phenomenal days at Augusta National. And here's how it ended with the dulcet tones of Jim Nance on the 18th green. Many doubted we'd ever see it, but here it is, the return to glory. So, David, we agree that it's a phenomenal comeback. I think it's the greatest golf comeback since Ben Hogan was nearly killed in a bus crash with his car back in the late 1940s. A lot of folks thought he would never walk again, came back to win a bunch of majors. This is very, very close, given that Tiger Woods has had spinal fusion surgery, so the Physical and uh, mental accomplishment here is phenomenal. I am not and never have been a big Tiger Woods fan. I think uh, his narcissism and his use of people to get what he wants over the years makes him very, very difficult to cheer for. And I'm not even referring that much to the uh, infidelities. That's obviously part of it. But uh, beyond that, since the infidelities are really their business, his behavior on the course, his behavior towards the media when he lost, he would stiff uh, people who would normally get pretty nice tips from golfers, stiffed autograph seekers, things like that. A lot of folks seem to think Tiger's turned a corner in those departments, and I certainly hope they're correct. You told me an interesting story in our email exchange here that you were in an airport when this happened, and it kind of captured how big of a moment this was for you. Yeah, I was uh, flying back from uh, Salt Lake City uh, to Nashville, had a layover in Phoenix. And as soon as I landed, I landed, I think, when Tiger was on the 17th, um, on the 17th green, got out of the plane when he was on the 18th fairway. And the immense number of people who had clustered around the on, around the TV screens was really unlike you know anything I've ever seen. I've been in airports during NFL playoffs and in airports during NBA finals. You know, when you travel a lot, you tend to be in airports when a lot of interesting things are happening. And the place was just absolute. It was just packed. The the restaurants were just packed with people watching. And when he put that final putt in. Um, the entire airport, you could hear the cheers echoing up and down the terminal. Uh, you know, look, people are, for lots of really good reasons, people love a comeback. And especially when a comeback is of somebody who has, who has really, and, and look, I'm, I'm, let's just put aside the personal stuff for a moment. I don't know the state of Tiger Woods' heart. There's no question that what he was doing in the early 2000s and late 2000s was awful. Um, he has paid an immense price for that. Um, so you put you put aside that for a moment and and look at the physical ailments. I mean, it was as recent as 2017 when he didn't even know, you know, he didn't know if he was going to be playing golf again. So here you have a guy who is 
who has been battered by his own decisions. He's been his body is battered uh, by all of the, you know, by, by the wear and tear of years and years as a top athlete. And then, you know, you, everyone thought that his era was over and then to come back and to come back this dramatically on the biggest stage. Uh, it was it was a, uh, one of those few true cultural moments we get to enjoy uh, nowadays. It's one of those few moments when everybody is glued to the same thing, rooting, you know, the overwhelming majority of the people rooting for the same thing. And it was just fun to see it. It was fun to be a part of it. It was fun to be in that atmosphere. And, uh, you know, it's going to be the story of the week, uh, maybe even overshadowing the Mueller report. Who knows? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Because they're more golf fans than political junkies. But the it was just a tremendous accomplishment. It was a joy to watch it um, and and to think about where he was and to where he is now. It's it's uh, it's a pretty inspiring. It's a pretty inspiring comeback. So put the bow on it. How does this uh, inspire or uh, appeal to conservatives? Is it just the the work ethic, uh, pulling yourself <laughs> back up time and time again until you reach the mountaintop again? I don't know if that there's a specific appeal to conservatives. I think this is just an appeal to people, and conservatives are people too. <laughs> it's just one of those moments in American history, uh, in sports history, where uh, an awful lot of us uh, were enjoying the exact same thing for many of the exact same reasons. Um, but yeah, I, I, you know, I think if anything, some con- there are conservatives who are like you, more skeptical of Tiger because of you know his obvious, pretty glaring uh, and terrible flaws. Uh, don't know where he is as a human being now. Uh, but I'll say this: it was incredibly touching to see. The embrace with his kids, because when you think about it, I believe his son hadn't even been born yet when he won his last major. That's his right. daughter had, was one year old and they've grown up entirely in the shadow of the fall of their father. And so to see their father, uh, you know, have this moment, I think, you know, that's incredibly special. It's obviously a big uh, a big moment for David here because, I mean, this was Game of Thrones season premiere and the start of the NBA playoffs, and he's most geeked up to talk about the Masters. So uh, that, that's, <laughs> well, you know, that's when you know it's a big event. The first day of the NBA playoffs was pretty remarkable with the uh, road <laughs> with the road underdog winning uh, three of the four games, I believe. So that's worth some discussion, but I'm sorry, you know, that game one, round one of the NBA playoffs is not quite up to par, up to the stature of one of the most epic masters in the history of the tournament. Uh, we'll have plenty of time to talk about the NBA after this. <laughs> Let's go on to the uh, the second good martini now. And uh, David, I have to assume that uh, ever since about, oh, mid-June of 2015, uh, Democrats have really enjoyed watching the right uh, battle itself over what to do about Donald Trump. And when you are firmly on one side of the aisle watching the other side in complete disarray, it means it's time to pop some popcorn. And the infighting among Republicans always gets more media attention than infighting among Democrats. But when you get that little bit of glimmer that it is happening on the left, uh, it's just delicious. So Nancy Pelosi <laughs> is Speaker of the House. She's had some frustrations, which Jim and I have chronicled, uh, with the AOCs of the world, uh, Rashida Tlaib's, Ilhan Omar's. That's another issue that's popping up for her uh, this week, uh, which we'll get to in a moment. But uh, Nancy Pelosi was interviewed by Leslie Stahl on 60 Minutes. And here's a bit of how this heavily edited conversation went. 
So you are contending with a group in Congress over here on the left flank are these self-described socialists. On the right, these moderates. And you yourself said that you're the only one who can unify everybody. And the question is, can you? By and large, uh, whatever orientation they came to Congress with, they know that we have to hold the center, that we have to go down the mainstream. They know that? They do. But it doesn't look like that. It looks as if it's fractured. She likes to minimize the conflicts within her caucus between the moderates and the progressives. You have these wings, AOC and her group on one side. That's like five people. No, it's the progressive group. It's more than five. I'm a progressive, yeah. So what do you make of this, David? Nancy Pelosi, I don't think quite expected this when she uh, elbowed her way back into the speaker's chair. Uh, No, but, you know, my sympathy is limited because nobody told (laughs) Nancy Pelosi to pose in Vanity Fair and Rolling Stone with Omar and Rashida Tlaib and uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I mean, so, you know, they're very, very happy to elevate these people uh, in some outlets while sort of trying to shove them aside and others. And, you know, I think I, I think that what's happening here is the Democrats have reached a realization in part because this really big New York Times story uh, that came out last week, which I think is really interesting and people have not fully appreciated its impact. They did, uh, comp- relying on, on some outside data, they did a comprehensive analysis of the Democratic primary electorate and found out that online Democrats, uh, those people who are most sort of prominent in the national conversation, who dominate Twitter, who dominate Facebook, et cetera, are outnumbered two to one by Democrats who are not online very much, who are not on social media very much. And the far greater number, the two to one, the majority of them are actually label themselves moderate or conservative. And the minority of Democrats, the ones who are very vocal online and in social media, are much more progressive. So it's funny. It's almost as if in the last five days you've seen this kind of awakening on the, in the Democratic Party and amongst some of these Democratic candidates saying, oh, maybe I don't have to be a servant to woke Twitter. Maybe... <laughs> Maybe, in fact, that might be bad for me because woke Twitter is not respond is not representative of my own electorate. And I think that you're beginning to see some of this walk back in a very interesting way from this general consensus that says, you know, this is going to be the woke Olympics. Now, I do think it will be you're going to have an awful lot of wokeness in the Democratic primary. But you're going to have a lane that exists, and it does exist for the person who's going to be able to say, look, I'm going to return America to normal. I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to be the person who is in the mainstream. I'm going to fight extremism. Um, who's and, and, you know, B- Biden would compete in that lane. Um, Beto may be competing in that lane. Buttigieg in some ways is, you know, some of those guys are doing actually trying to do, you can see they're trying to do a tap dance where they on the one hand are trying to stay in good graces of woke Twitter. And then on the other hand, they're trying to maintain enough wiggle room for, uh, you know, when they're, when the primary goes to real voters and not Twitter observers. And so, you know, Buttigieg, for example, 
um, would say, well, he's for Medicare for all who want Medicare, which is a, a way of saying public option without saying without dismissing sort of the Medicare for all language. An interesting little tap dance there. So I think what you're seeing is this way, sudden realization that, oh, wow, um, we don't need to follow Twitter trends and maybe shouldn't follow Twitter trends to determine who's going to be the Democratic nominee, because that might actually uh, cost us in 2020. And it might in the primary cost the people who are most aware of sort of these online, uh, you know, these online trends and fights. So uh, I think Nancy Pelosi is a pretty shrewd politician. And some of the other shrewd politicians are realizing that they might have a problem on their hands. (laughs) They just might. And so Joe Biden is basically telling folks, uh, assuming he gets in here, that he's going to be the the link back to the Obama years. And you've got AOC saying that uh, that Biden just doesn't really animate her. So uh, just a couple of years after the end of uh, the Obama years, that uh, sounds like the woke crowd is ready to move on. But as you said, uh, the bulk of the party might not be with them yet. So. And that's probably yeah, a good but thing. you know, we uh, uh, conservatives need to be careful about the popping popcorn because the Democrats were really popping popcorn for about a year and a half until about 10 p.m. on election night, <laughs> <laughs> and then the popcorn started tasting bitter in their mouths. So, you know, it's entirely possible that you can sit there and pop popcorn and think that you know, oh look, the the Democrats are are um, sort of walling themselves off for the electorate. But then when the election gets binary, people who, you know, maybe are suboptimal candidates, not the first choice type candidate, becomes the only candidate. Well, then, you know, then it gets, I think, um, as Donald Trump showed, much less predictable. So my own view is that we conservatives should want the Democrats not to nominate the candidate who we believe is most likely to lose which is, of course, what the Republic Democrats are rooting for when they're rooting for Trump, but rooting for the candidate that if that candidate wins is better for the country than the alternatives, because we just got to get out of this mindset that says, hey, you know, the other side's mistakes guarantee our victory. That's exactly what the Democrats thought on election right up until 10 p.m. on election night. So um, it's it's uh, the popcorn can be tasty, but the popcorn can turn bitter quickly. So uh, let's talk about Ilhan Omar from Minnesota. She has gotten herself in a whole heap of trouble a few times already since uh, taking the oath of office back in January. I believe there was at least one resolution condemning anti-Semitism in general, and then Nancy Pelosi circled back another time, and the Democrats weren't up for that again. But the the latest uh, dust-up here is about Ilhan Omar's comments to a CARE banquet back in March, where she had this to say about the creation of CARE Uh, around the time of 9-11, which is not actually true, but here's what she said. CARE was founded after 9-11 because they recognized that some people did something and that all of us were starting to lose access to our civil liberties. CARE was actually founded in 1994, but uh, so she says some people did something, and that obviously upset a lot of people. You have Dan Crenshaw, congressman from Texas, who tweeted out, first member of Congress to ever describe terrorists who killed thousands of Americans on 9-11 as some people who did something. Unbelievable. At that point, AOC tweets out, you refuse to co-sponsor the 9-11 Victims Compensation Fund, yet have the audacity to drum resentment towards Zilhan without, with completely out-of-context quotes. 
In 2018, right-wing extremists were behind almost all U.S. domestic killings. Why don't you go do something about that? Here's what Crenshaw said on Fox News Channel. The last I checked, I... I thought I did defend 9-11 victims. I went overseas and, <laughs> yeah. and tried to make sure that this attack never happened again exactly. and made sure to take the fight to the enemy that committed it. It's not just her either. It's also her counterpart in New York, Max Rose. I mean, the fact that they would double down on this and try to provide cover for Ilhan Omar when, when all you have to do really is say, hey, you know, she misspoke or maybe, you know, maybe she didn't mean it that way. Why don't you say that? And then, of course, the dust up uh, over the weekend when President Trump tweeted out a video splicing in Ilhan Omar's comments with footage from the 9-11 attacks themselves. And a lot of Trump critics saw that as an incitement to violence against Omar. And Nancy Pelosi is now looking at beefing up security for the congresswoman. So, uh, David, uh, you are a veteran of the global war on terrorism as well. So I'm guessing you have a perspective on this that a lot of folks are going to want to hear. What do you make of how this started and the, the back and forth we've seen since then? I think it's entirely possible we we may have come close to hitting peak stupid on Twitter <laughs> over the weekend. Um, because let, let's just trace this. So number one, look, there is a charitable interpretation of her remarks, and the charitable interpretation of her remarks is that she was saying you don't want to blame the the entire you know the whole for the actions of the few, which is a valid argument. But she made the valid argument in the most flippant, dismissive way that you can't. I mean you. You can't read what she said or listen to what she said in context and think, oh, she was placing proper gravity on what occurred on 9-11. Um, she was dismissive of it. I mean, that's that's the fair view of it is she was dismissive of it. And it's entirely in bounds for Congressman Crenshaw to say that's, quote, unbelievable. And so but rather but you're right, then everybody starts doubling down. So <laughs> you have, you know, a calling out. Congressman Crenshaw, who lost an eye in Afghanistan, as being insufficiently supportive, you know, of 9-11 victims. Then you have the president, you know, at this point, an unpresidential tweet. It's hardly a newsflash, but he he does what's honestly, I think, a little bit of an unpresidential tweet, splicing footage of 9-11 over Omar's words. And then but then that led to the full on meltdown, like that he was inciting violence against her. That is not incitement. Um, incitement is a word with a legal definition. That is not incitement. That it was because she was Muslim, that it was because she's a woman of color, um, that, you know, and that all Republicans need to stand together to condemn Donald Trump. Um, well, hold on. And, and yes, Omar has received death threats. That's terrible. Okay, that's terrible. But wait, let's back up a minute. Were Democrats inciting violence when, for example, Cory Booker called those who support Kavanaugh's nomination complicit in evil? You know, all of the hysterical rhetoric around Kavanaugh, his family was under threat. Um, there, there are people arrested for sending for threatening the lives of Republican senators. I mean, wait a minute. Is that inside? I'm, I'm, I'm confused here. I guess if you use overheated rhetoric for um social justice. That's not incitement. I mean, Reza Aslan tweets out, you know, among, about uh, the, this poor 15 year old kid on the uh, Covington Catholic incident on the Catholic on the steps of the uh, Lincoln Memorial. Have you ever seen a more punchable face or whatever it is? Was that incitement to violence? What it is, is essentially trying to say, look, we're going to try to rule out of bounds, tough criticism of our favored advocates. And that's, I'm sorry, it does not 
work like that. And to bring in racism uh, into it, I think is, again, particularly out of bounds. It's not like this is happening in a vacuum. Ilan Omar said grossly anti-Semitic things in the very recent past since she has been elected. Not just dog whistle things. Forgetting all this dog whistle nonsense. She was just whistling. (laughs) There was... (laughs) There was nothing dog whistle about her anti-Semitic comments. And so, so here you have an, a, an extremist congresswoman whom, who is engaged in anti-Semitic rhetoric and then who is undeniably dismissive of 9-11. And tough criticism of that is inciting violence. Is that where they want to go here? Because if tough criticism is, in, of, is incitement of violence, um, well, I've got some words for the left. Um, it's gone over the top time and time and time and time again in rhetoric. I mean, we've seen allegations that Republican tax cuts will kill people. The Republican health care plans will kill people. Uh, you know, that's where we are in our rhetoric. And so, you know, look, this idea, number one, was some of the criticism of Elon Omar over the top? Yes. Were Elon Omar's comments uh, tr- treating 9-11 flippantly and dismissively? Yes. Um, were Republicans inciting violence against her with even the over-the-top critiques? No, not at all. And by the way, if you're going to make that argument, physician, heal thyself. Uh, but yeah, this was just absurd. It's absurd. It got to the point where I, I just had to turn, I, I just had to close Twitter because of the sheer volume of stupidity that was flowing from it. Um, it, it was it was remarkable, just remarkable, with no one showing any humility no one showing any consistency and no one recognizing the the harm that people on the other side have suffered. Very well stated, David. And it, it raises a question in my mind that um, reminds me of every summer we have interns here, college students, of course. And I ask them when they come in, what's the first major news story you remember? And for the past several years, most of it's been 9-11. But for the past few cycles of interns now, they don't even remember that, um, yeah. which makes me wonder, since obviously it's almost, what, 18 years ago this September, so college students wouldn't remember it anymore, what does it mean that people who are voting, people who are coming of age in politics now, don't have that seared into them like uh, everyone who can remember that so vividly back then? As it retreats into the past, um, people are not going to realize the gravity of the moment. I mean, this is just something that happens all the time. Um, you know, not to digress too much philosophically, but one of the things that I think has in in not, the not so distant past, which has led to um, what has contributed to um, the, the I, one thing that I think contributed to the launch of World War One is that the memory of catastrophic conflict. Europe as a continent had been relatively peaceful since the Napoleonic Wars with some limited exceptions. And the memory of catastrophic conflict had drifted from public consciousness. And so when people launched 19, what was going, what unfolded in 1914, they didn't know what they were getting into. And, you know, you see uh, an awful lot of times when a, a terrible event recedes in the past, the gravity of the event begins to diminish. It's one of the reasons why it's so important to maintain education about the Holocaust. It's important for st- students to go through the Holocaust Museum. So that as that event recedes into the past, we don't lose sight of the gravity of the harm. And, you know, it's very easy to judge um, the actions of the past by the standards of the present or by the ignorance of the present. 
And and that's one of the things that I have one reason why I have a problem with her flippant comment about 9-11. And it makes the American alarm in response to what occurred on 9-11 seem unjustified, make it seem uh, extraordinarily and excessively punitive compared to what actually occurred. But what actually occurred was the worst loss of life um, in U.S. history from a foreign uh, attack and the most serious foreign attack on an American city uh, since the British burned Washington, D.C. in the War of 1812. So, you know, to say she almost treats it as if Americans just grossly overreacted. Well, it was a horrible day. It was a horrible event. And to treat it so flippantly denies the actual power of the event. It's a it's a form of ahistorical revisionism. So thankful for those who answered the call to serve, yourself included, and uh, Congressman Crenshaw, obviously, uh, with the sacrifices he made and, and many, many others uh, along the way, and the families, of course, of those folks. Tough time for them, I'm guessing, with all this nonsense uh, going back and forth on Twitter as well. David, uh, always great to have you with us. Glad you're here for the whole week, and you and I will talk again tomorrow. Looking forward to it. Thanks so much. David French of National Review, in for Jim Garrity, who is off all week. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. Thanks for being with us today, and tune in again on Tuesday for the next Three Martini Lunch.